Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Good Folk Podcast. My name is Spencer George. I am your host. If you have been listening, I'd love to give a special shout out to our producer as well, Victoria Landers, who is doing all of this awesome work on the back end. We are joined here today by someone who I'm so excited to have on the podcast. They are just amazing. Daisha Green is a multimedia artist, performer, Floridian, and child of the African diaspora, a graduate from Williams College with an honors BA in women's gender and sexuality studies and Africana studies. Daisha relies heavily on the audiovisual form to repair and disrupt the intricate intersections of identity. At Williams, Daisha published an audiovisual zine entitled Our Home Will Be Underwater by 2040. We will link to that. It is amazing. You can watch it on Vimeo. Tormented by the question, what does it mean to exist in a place that will cease to exist in my lifetime? Daisha Green, in alliance with FemPower, uses FemPower's queer and intersexual lens on an environmental politics to offer a site for a queer reimagining of South Florida's history, a history saturated in colonialism, settlerism, gentrification, and violence. As if that bio was not impressive enough, you can see there are many similar topics to a lot of the work we do here at Good Folks. We're very lucky to have Daisha here to talk about all of these things. We're going to be delving into the idea of climate change in the coastal South, um, the effects that that is going to have on communities of marginalized identity. We're going to be talking about creative work in terms of environmentalism and activism where do we go from here, which is a question I am also asking myself and a lot of my work and many other exciting topics. So this is definitely going to be a conversation you want to listen to. I'm going to turn it over to Daisha now to add anything that you would like to and just tell us a little bit more about your work and how you kind of got started with all of this. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Spencer. That was like just a warm welcome to the podcast. So hello, everyone. Um, Again, I'm Daisha Green. And yeah, how I really got started with this work um, is, you know, I I went to Williams and, you know, going into Williams, I was like, all right, great. I'm at this elitist PWI. Like, what am I going to do with my time there? And before even going in, I saw the major and I was like, yes, this is exactly what I want. Like, all right, sure. I'm going to be at this place, but like, let's do this thing that I find, you know, to be worthwhile. And that really spoke to me. So it was sort of my senior year. I was in the midst of COVID um, as was the rest of the world. Um, And I knew I wanted to produce a thesis, but quite honestly, I was really tired of writing papers. And I felt like I didn't want to write something that was just going to sit in a Williams library. I really wanted to produce a film, honestly. Um, So the sort of inception of the project came when I was like, okay, I want to do something that is about my hometown. Um, So South Florida, just the area. um, And I want to touch on thousand different topics um, that are all sort of inextricably linked um, from you know climate change to um, intersectional feminism, queerness, blackness, um, being a young activist in a sort of climate that hates young queer black activists. Um, so I sort of embarked on the project. I initially had planned for it to be a documentary. I really wanted to sort of interview everyone in person and get all of this footage. Um, but we were in the midst of a pandemic. Um, And so I really had to sort of pivot. I was able to get in contact with members of Power, who were just absolutely amazing and welcoming, um, considering they had um, a really, I guess, violent um, past summer. So right before I started filming, where, um, you know, they had the the governor of Florida was like doxing them and tweeting their information, essentially like calling them, you know, 
anti-government, all of those things, fascist. So they had, you know, their personal information leaked. A couple of them actually had to flee the country for fear of like their safety and their family's safety. So I was really just honored that they were sort of welcoming to me and they sort of gave me like unprecedented access into their world, but I wasn't able to shoot with any of them in person. So I, I really had to pivot and the project itself um, relies purely on archival material. And I it was sort of like, okay, how do I tell the story that I want to, but I also have to tell it through this framework of like this institution. Um, so I sort of landed on the concept of an audiovisual zine because a lot of the film is pictures or um, images or like archival material. Um, and so I really, you know, like a zine had to like, weave and suture and stitch together different materials and timelines and stories to create something that um, was personal, but was also sort of called, was a call to action, much like the feminist tradition of zine making. So yeah, the process itself was, I think about it now, wild. I accomplished a lot in a really short um, amount of time with a lot of just like limited materials and and time. Um, And it's a project I'm really proud of. And it's one that I didn't want to focus solely on, um, you know, the impending environmental doom of Florida, despite the title of it. But I felt, though, that, like, if it was going to be something that did something, it had to be a piece that was like, hey, listen, our home is going to be underwater by 2040. And that is actually inspired by a piece in The Guardian that projects many areas of South Florida, specifically, specifically Miami, to be underwater by 2040. And that was just something that, yeah, just tormented me throughout the process. It's like, how do I archive this place, Florida, that is often (laughs) cast as like the the strange, like distant cousin of the South and um, sort of the ostracized family member of the United States? Like, how do I tell a story of Florida that is one that I haven't seen, is one that's my experience that's inherently Black and, and queer and unapologetic. So yeah, that's that's a bit about the story and how it got there. And yeah, I, yeah, just that's, that's it. That's all I got. There's so many things I want to touch on about what you just said. But if you're listening, I want you to pause this right now and go <laughs> and watch the video, the audiovisual zine. It, we're going to link it right below because it is amazing. And I love what you're talking about of the idea of it being almost an archival work, but one that's going to exist beyond the library. Um, one thing I've been thinking about, you know, Daisha and I met both working in a literary nonprofit both have kind of some experience working in the publishing worlds. And one thing that I have found is the way that so many amazing things are being put out into the world all the time. And it's the problem of getting an audience to them, right? We've talked about this a little bit on our podcast with Alexis, which I will link back to as well. But the idea that, you know, I feel the same where I always thought, oh, I'm writing about the South and about the rural South and nobody else is doing this, right? Because I hadn't seen it. And once I took a step back and started digging into it, I found people are already doing this, right? Just kind of exactly what you're talking about. This work is already being done. How are we getting eyes to it? So moving beyond something that's just going to sit in a library, but really being able to showcase in a way that's weaving together this archive and this history, but to get people's eyes on it, um, I think is so amazing. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what FemPower does for people who might not be familiar um, or who have not gotten a chance to watch the film yet. um, If you could just explain a little bit more about them because they're awesome. Yeah, totally. So they're a Black feminist, socialist, eco-feminist, and 
anti-capitalist um, organization made primarily of black and brown femmes in Miami. Um, so that's where they're based. Um, and sort of how they started is Helen Pina, the founder, Nikki Franco, and a couple of others um, created a zine. Um, so that was also, I guess, sort of inspiration for the project is Femme Power was born out of a zine. Um, and it was all, it was short, it's, it's actually in the film. Um, so you can you can check that out and on their website. Um, sorry if the fire <laughs> going off in the back background. Um, but- You can't hear it at all, I promise. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, so it started off as a zine, um, and then it sort of evolved into this, you know, community in Miami. Um, so they have a lot of different branches. They have um, a liberation book club where every week um, they sort of gather in Nikki Franco's um, living room or wherever they have a community space um, to read different um, liberating works by Black and Brown revolutionaries. They have um, a Femme Fairy Garden. So it's a local community garden in Miami where um, people will come and they'll harvest or they'll plant and really just a space of shared community. Um, they also have Masisi, which there's also clips in. In, um, the project from the CC. It's essentially, you can think of it as like a black and brown, like just the coolest party you've ever seen, but it's really supposed to be a celebration of blackness and queerness. And it's a space just for that. Um, they also have um, a jail, uh, a jail fund sort of department where they work really closely with um, just other important nonprofits and organizations in the area. Um, so like U Power, for example, in Miami, um, where they work to raise money um, to support and um, raise bail money for black and brown, specifically mothers. Um, and yeah, they just do really, really kick ass, awesome work. Um, so there's a ton of youth who's involved. They'll go to town halls and they'll hold rallies and they just create really beautiful space that is exclusively, um, or I should say primarily for black and brown queer people, which we don't always see in Miami. Um, it's especially Miami is a very diverse place. And I think for those visiting, you, it's very, the diverse, the diversity is very palpable, but there aren't many spaces where that black and brownness has an opportunity to sort of work in conjunction with one another and work for positive change um, and revolutionary change specifically. So I think that Femme Power, they're a group of revolutionaries who are doing just really brilliant, brilliant work. And yeah, I just feel like so just honored to be able to, you know, highlight their their contributions and be able to archive um, a lot of the really impre- incredible work that they've done. As you were talking, I love the use of the word kick-ass because that's the exact <laughs> word that came to mind for me. I was like, this is just a really kick-ass group and we need yeah. one in every city. Um, yeah, that's I can't say anything more because they just sound they incredible. So if you're not familiar with their work, definitely check them out. Definitely watch them in the film. And if you are in Miami, definitely try to get involved um, and follow their work because they are awesome. One thing that you brought up is Miami. So I think this is fascinating. And I think people forget about Florida as part of the South. Um, (laughs) As you know, Good Folk is a podcast and community project geared largely towards telling stories of rural communities and specifically the rural South. People forget about Florida a lot. Florida is this weird middle ground where I think if you were to ask somebody like, you know, we've both worked in New York City. I think if you were to ask somebody in New York, like draw a map of the American South, they probably would leave Florida out of it. I think even sometimes yeah. even I leave Florida out of the South, right? And especially Miami, because it's like there's Florida and then there's like Florida. 
Um, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about your feelings? Like, do you consider Florida part of the South? Do you think of yourself as a Southerner or do you think of yourself as a Floridian? And what does that line kind of look like to you? Yeah, I definitely, I think especially after moving to New York, I'm definitely like, oh, I'm from the South. Like, I think that that was something. And also going to school in, you know, rural Massachusetts, like I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm really from the South. I think just my love of the word y'all um, showcases There's that. like an awakening that happens. Yeah, when I didn't think of myself as a Southerner until I moved to New York. And then I was like, oh, no, I, I am definitely from the South, right? But it's this yeah. weird shift where when you're in it, you're like, I don't know. And then you leave and it's like, oh, okay, maybe I am from the South, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just, I was talking with a friend about how like, I'm like, oh yeah, just, you know, all of Florida's schools are just like outside. Like, I mean, the classrooms are inside, there's a door that closes, but like all of all of the schools are outside. And she was like, what? Like just little things like that. So I would definitely consider Florida to be part of the South. There's actually sort of like a, a funny saying in Florida. So in my brain and in a lot of Floridian Floridians' brains, there's three parts to Florida. There's North Florida, there's Central Florida, and there's South Florida, which is also why I really like to make that distinction that I am from South Florida, because if you're from Florida, you know that there is a distinction between the three. And sort of like the saying in Florida is the more north you go in Florida, the more southern it is. Um, So if you think about like the Panhandle, even like Central Florida around Orlando, that is where you're going to feel the most like you're in I guess, the South, whatever that's sort of categorized as. Um, You'll have just a lot of like open land and ranches, sometimes even, you know, the negative attributes associated with the South, like (laughs) overt racism and homophobia and transphobia, all of those things. Um, And then you also notice people just have an accent, just a more, I guess, slow paced, you know, typical Southern way of life in Central, more specifically North Florida. And South Florida is really interesting because, it really is a conglomeration of hundreds, if not thousands of cultures in one place. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people leave out Florida as the South because, you know, Key West is the southernmost place in the United States. Like it is the most South that you can get and it is in Florida. Um, But yeah, South Florida is interesting. It tends to well, one has has more people um, and more people from different backgrounds. And two, It's a place that tends to lean um, more liberal than other parts of Florida. So you'll see in the election season, um, if you look at a map, it tends to be like the area that I grew up in is just like this little pocket of blue. And then, you know, there's little pockets everywhere else. But Florida will often flip red and that you can sort of account that to, you know, the north and and central areas. Um, But it's also a place like Miami is a very interesting place because it's a tourist destination and that's where everyone wants to go. And so it also has this very glamorized um, view, or I guess this glamorized image that people think of. Um, Again, I had a friend who was like, I'm trying to go somewhere warm. Like I'm trying to go to Miami. And I was like, girl, you do not want to go to Miami right now. First of all, it's June. It is way too hot to be in Florida. Like, let me just say that. And yeah, Yeah, if you you have never experienced a southeastern summer, it is. um, I wouldn't say it's a destination. Most of us are trying to get out of here in the summer. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a very I think that I would identify like as a southerner, as a Floridian. Um, I actually wasn't born in Florida, but I lived, you know, most of my life here, definitely like my adult life in Florida. Um, And yeah, it's it's this weird thing where in Florida there's 
there's not really that much of a stigma, but like the second you leave and the second that you open your mouth and you say that you're from Florida, you're met with like very obvious opinions of like, oh, the Florida man, the Florida woman. And I've told so many like silly stories about like in school, you learn how to like run away from an alligator and like you take a trip in the fourth grade to the Everglades and things like that. But I think one thing that really was the driving force behind the film was that there's a lot of things even as a Floridian that you don't learn and that you don't learn I mean you sort of learn like oh the Spanish conquistadors came here in the 1500s and then that was sort of it but there's a lot of history that's left out um, specifically about how Florida was a refuge for a lot of um, enslaved Africans in the United States and there were maroon communities that were formed between Spanish settlers, um, indentured European Americans, um, uh, the indigenous people of the land. Like there were entire communities like in Florida and that Florida wasn't really a part of the United States for a long time, primarily because it was governed and ruled completely by indigenous people. And they protected the Everglades, which is an integral part of Florida's ecosystem. And you sort of can trace, um, I guess, <laughs> you can sort of predict the trend of Florida's impending environmental devastation by how much of the Everglades that was destroyed. Because the Everglades is the heart of Florida. And it stretched thousands of miles across the state and regulated every ecosystem of its kind. And then we see you know, Spanish come in, but then we see Florida becomes this tourist destination where Disney World wants to be built and shopping malls and airports. And in that, they drained the Everglades and they created canals that diverted the water away from the heart of Florida. And as a result, like the state, I think personally, the state, even even in the midst of all of the, the chaotic climate change that we are seeing, I think that if the Everglades remained as it once was, that I don't think Florida would be as in trouble as it is right now, because the Everglades is is the heart and is the regulator of the state. And now that it has now been diminished to like 40 miles or something like that. Um, yeah, it's scary, honestly. So that was a long way of answering like, yes, I'm a, I'm a Floridian. I believe it's in the South. So, yeah. Yeah, it's the idea of unseen history, I think, is is a major problem in Florida. Like, I don't know any of these things as you're saying them. And also just across the South in general, like uh, growing up, I'm, I'm also technically was not born in the Carolinas, but have spent my entire life here. My whole family's here. It's hard to figure out if you identify with something. We will touch about that. I would love to talk about that in a little bit. But I learned the Civil War is the war of Northern aggression, right? Like you inherit these beliefs that are around you. And if you're not having access to these histories, that aren't being told. Most of the time you think, well, this is all I know of a place because this is what is around me. And in so many ways, it's been both like mind blowing and also just really like heartbreaking in a lot of ways to come back and do my own archival research into these histories and find out these things and to realize like, wow, the South has the largest group of LGBT people in the country, right? Like I spent my whole life thinking I'd have to leave if I was going right. to fit in somewhere and mm -hmm. finding out, you know, these different histories of environmentalism and activism and rural artistry and things that you're like, I wish I had known this 10, right. 15 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. What I like to think is that, you know, the work that you're doing is the kind of thing that's going to make that different for future generations and people will have mm -hmm. access to these histories. That is something that is really nice about tools like social media of 
you can now be able to find these things out. But it's hard, you know, with what's happening, um, Florida with the don't say gay bill. I know North Carolina of people have been following that is very close to passing here. It, it is very likely to get vetoed by our governor. Um, we do have a Democratic governor here in North Carolina, but it's passed all the way up to that point. Do you feel that these things are, I mean, I, I'm sure this is kind of an obvious question, but it's like the work you're doing is pushing against these histories. And then it's like, there's this pushback coming from yeah. these places that I think one of the things that is the hardest in doing any kind of activist work in the South is the number one thing the South has to do, and including Florida, is work with and against its own history, right? Like number one, mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge these things that happened. And number two, we have to actively work to rewrite them. But I think there's a moment where you've got kind of two groups in the South, one that's very wedded to the histories that they learned and one that's trying to uncover these new histories and kind of rewrite these stories. How right. do you feel about what's happening with that? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you were saying about like just in this line of work and activist work specifically in the South, like you can immerse yourself in a community that believes all the same things that you do on both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. And so it feels at times, especially when I was doing this work, that I was just like, yes, like I found this group in Florida that thinks that the same things that I do and, and believes and has lived these experiences. And there's all of these other people um, that have as well. And especially like on social media, just like being able to connect with people who you may never have, may never have the chance to connect with. And then like actively seeing your Florida government pass legislation that is the antithesis of your work. And it feels at times, especially in activist work it feels sometimes like you're fighting a losing battle and I think that's honestly why a lot of times stories don't get told and things get sort of covered up is because burnout is very real and I think with Power in particular I think that they they have been and they do incredible work but I also think that they're tired and I think that a lot of them have been living and breathing this work since the moment that, that they were born and then to be in an ecosystem whose you know so-called leaders government officials are actively working against you but they also have legislative power I think is is beyond exhaustive um and I think that like yeah it's just it's really it's really disheartening because I, I made this piece hoping that you know some younger version of myself would see this piece and see like, oh my God, I didn't re realize that this version of Florida could could exist or, or does exist. Um, at the same time, are watching legislation unfold that are actively dissuading them from living their truth and their histories. So I wish I had a clear cut answer for you. It's, it's, infuri it's infuriating. Well, there, there is no clear cut answer, right? Because it's yeah. just like this whole thing of, mixed emotions. And um, we actually just published a post today about this of like having such a complicated relationship to where you're from of you love it and you hate it at the same time and also want to make it better. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the point of exhaustion. Um, I've written about this with good folk of there's a level of exhaustion that comes from doing activist work in an area where what you're kind of trying to push might not be the most popular or accepted opinion. 
And especially mm-hmm. if you're doing that in kind of a rural or southern area, because not only are you dealing with the judgment of people in that direct community, oftentimes, but culturally, we have a whole country that loves to like scapegoat the South for everything yeah. bad in this country. Yeah. And, and in a way that I think oftentimes is enables people to not recognize there's problems everywhere, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like we can just say the South is the only racist place in this country. There is racism in New York City. There is racism in right. Los Angeles. There is racism in San Francisco. And I think unless we, A, stop scapegoating the South and B, start to recognize that, like, we're not going to make any progress culturally. But there is a level of exhaustion when you're like one organization or a handful of individuals working in a community that actively feels like it's working against you in a country that actively is working against all of us with right. the cultural opinion of people who are going to like make you feel like your work is not important or valuable because the South is never going to change. And anybody who's paying attention is recognizing like things are changing. Um, and I think that's where so much of this cultural pushback is emerging out of, of a lot of people understanding that change is happening and being unwilling to recognize it, right? Like it's mm-hmm. hard to let go of stories you've been telling yourself and unlearn them. It is a mm-hmm. lifelong process. But Mm -hmm. nobody has to do that alone, right? Like the problem is if you are unwilling to unlearn them and then you just try to hold on to these stories. And I don't know where we go from here. And I think the Coastal South, um, the Guardian piece you referenced, I also used for a piece that Mm -hmm. I published about South Carolina. And Mm -hmm. the same thing right behind Miami, Charleston is right up there, which is where I Mm -hmm. spent most of my teenage life. And it's really hard as an adult to like, uncover these histories, start to feel some love for this place, start to feel like maybe I could go back and make a home in that and also know like it's going to be gone. I'm really averse to moving back to my hometown because I know that by the time I put down roots, I'm going to be uprooting them. Um, And I think that's a really particular relationship. Anyone who's spent time in the coastal South or any of these places experience kind of really drastic climate change at the moment people outside of that just aren't going to understand it of it's already hard enough to learn to love your home and then to love it while it's literally sinking. Like, how do you reconcile with that? I don't know if there is an answer to that question. There's most definitely not. Otherwise I would have answered it in my film. That was like my like year long quest was like devoting myself to this question. And you read from my bio, like I was literally tormented by this question of like, what does it mean to exist and love a place and hate a place that will cease to exist in my own lifetime. Like this isn't like, oh, you know, my my great grandkids may never see, you know, where I went to school. It's like if I move back home or where my family is now, projected by 2040, that place will no longer exist. Like that is that is devastating and that is exhausting, especially like you were saying, like. I grew up with a very complicated relationship to Florida. I mean, I I moved from originally Colorado to Florida when I was quite young. And I think initially I loved it. I mean, it's Florida, like it's warm, there's beaches. I lived a mile from the beach. And then as I got older, the place wasn't always very kind to me. And I faced a lot of just blatant racism and homophobia and sexism and transphobia and all of the things. And then I was able to form communities that I loved and that loved me back. And then once I got more in touch with the land, the histories of the land and really like the beauty and like the resilience of Florida, like all the time I'll be joking, like with my friends, like we'll be driving and I'm like, 
can you imagine this place just like untouched by colonialism, untouched by settlerism? And then you also think, I'm also like, how did they just colonize this place? Like I'm constantly just like how like Florida it, as an ecosystem is incredibly resilient. I mean, you have entire ecosystems that are already underwater. And so I think that when I think about home, I think about my family, I think about the places that I live, but I also think about the Florida wildlife itself. And it's this weird thing that I know that Florida as an ecosystem will be fine. And that for hundreds of and thousands of years, it has just created an ecosystem unlike a lot of others in the world. Like you have just mangroves that are just trees that just grow underwater and you have the Everglades, a, a marshy wetland that is similar to a lot of other coastal, southern coastal places. So I think that, you know, Florida as an entity will be fine, but the places and the things that I know and love will no longer exist. Every time I go back and there's, you know, a, a torrential downpour as, as there is in Florida, the streets are literally flooded and you see entire like areas that you know were once just supposed to be grass that are now entire like lakes or ponds um, or marshy areas. And I think that like when we talk about environmental devastation, it's this thing that feels almost futuristic. It's like, oh, that it's, a, it's the apocalyptic future. It's this, this time that won't exist for a while. And then when you leave, for example, like, you know, I, I live in New York, but I go back and I visit, I can literally see the changes happening before my eyes like oh yeah that that used to be a soccer field and now it's just underwater and so it's it's complicated because I think a version of of Daisha in the past would have said like oh I don't care about this Florida this Florida has been so mean to me and I don't care if it's underwater but mm. I think the version of myself loves the land and the people with all of their complexities and all of their shortcomings which there are a few and it's difficult to have to watch it disappear in real time. Mm. Yeah, there's so many things that you said that I just so deeply resonate with. All of the things. I'm thinking <laughs> a lot about adaptability um, and how like the it's the land that will adapt more than the people. Yeah. And I think when I was doing research into the piece that I wrote, very similar topic about Charleston going underwater also by 2040, one thing I met with a bunch of engineers and one thing they were talking about is, you know, in Europe where they're facing coastal flooding, they have communities where they've learned to create things that are like a skate park when flood levels are low and they turn into a swimming pool when flood levels are high. Or mm -hmm. they've done a lot of work in terms of like environmental engineering with canals and trying to really think about living with the water instead of working against it. And there have been so many problems they were telling me of like translating that back to America um, and especially in these like southern coastal communities because there's just this unwillingness to adapt and recognize what is happening and it's a problem with climate change. And again, like we were talking about before, it's a problem across the board because we cannot seem to recognize what we're up against, nor do we seem to be able to figure out how to adapt and work with these things and work with each other. And um, the title I ended up using for the piece I was writing was Common High Ground, which is that mm -hmm. we have to find a common high ground with each other and with the water, right? Like, because it is, it's, we have to face the facts by in our lifetime. Like this is not a futuristic thing. 
I will drive home to visit family now and I'm driving through like five feet of water and yeah. kayaking after school down highways. And it's just like, oh, that's normal. Like, that's just what people do here. And it's like, okay, but, mm -hmm. but it's not just what people do. I mean, maybe it is just what we do, but we shouldn't have mm -hmm. to just exist in this, right? We have to start mm -hmm. thinking about solutions. But where do you think we, we go from here I mean, in terms of adaptability? Do you think Florida is going to be able to adapt or do you think it's, again, this kind of thing of like the land will adapt? I think people will I, move away. Yeah, I definitely think that the white people who have money and anybody who has money will move away 100%. Yes, and this was something uh, that came up with like insurance companies that are going to mm -hmm. stop insuring homes um, because like because of coastal flooding. So it's going to be a thing of like you're either renting because you can't afford to move and that's where you have to stay or you're buying a home because you don't care and can afford to lose it, which just continues right. to create the, I mean, a divide that's already there, it just continues yeah. to make it even worse. And that's happening right now in like the next five years. Yeah. It's mind-blowing to me. Yeah. No, I think that anybody who has money to leave will leave, of course, um, because nobody wants to watch your house go underwater. But I think for all of the black and brown and other people who are low income, um, and specifically black and brown low income people, there are, you cannot leave. Like there, there is no way out. Um, but I do think something that I uncovered through research is just that indigenous people who owned, rightfully owned Florida were incredibly adaptable and have like loads of knowledge about adaptability and navigating the Floridian landscape. And I think that sometimes well, no, I think all the time we don't listen to the indigenous people of the land. Um, and by we, I mean, like, people in government positions, um, government held positions. And I think that if we want to create a Florida that is livable now and will be livable, that really the only option is to listen to the people who cultivated the land from its inception that I think that there is there is no way around it because like non-indigenous people will continue to build casinos and hotels and clear land and drain the Everglades to build golf courses and theme parks and I think that the Florida land for a long time has just been longing for in my opinion its rightful owner which are the indigenous peoples of the land and I think that, unfortunately, because of literal genocide, a lot of those people and those stories um, and those tidbits of advice about adaptability have unfortunately been lost. But I don't think it's too late. There are a ton of Indigenous communities who still reside in Florida, are still also doing activist work um, and just just the work that should that everyone should be doing. I don't even like really calling it activist work because I'm like, how would you not want to save the place that, that you live in? So I think that, of course, Florida can adapt. I definitely don't think that it's too late by any means, but I do think that it involves essentially returning it to its rightful owner um, and owners, people who, yeah, can speak the language of the land and have for thousands of years. Yeah, no, I completely agree. There's been a lot of research I've seen coming out too with California and wildfires and these things would be prevented if we listened to the indigenous communities there and had things like controlled burns, right? And I think we just as Americans have this push for control. 
Um, mm-hmm. That and and this, I mean, this dates back long through colonial histories, right? We want to like fix everything and fix right. it in our way, which is often very much the wrong way. Um, and one thing I've always been interested when I've done a lot of research into kind of climate studies in the South and and the coastal South is the role of spirituality often. Um, and, and if you look back at communities that have always learned kind of how to live with the water and work with it, um, we just don't listen to that wisdom. And on a government cultural scale, it, we're not respecting it. Um, we're continuing to try to build wall. I mean, Charleston, they're literally building a wall around the city. And it's like, yeah. what? You're just going to keep raising the wall higher? I, I had a moment when this is a total tangent, but I was watching the new Batman film a few months ago. <laughs> and that is like a vision of kind of a future. And they've literally built a wall around New York City. And they were talking about the wall bursting open and the water. And I was like, is this yeah. what's going to happen in all of these towns? I mean, the Outer Banks and Miami might just go completely underwater. These other cities are just going to have walls around them. Like, is that really the future that we want because we can trace a lot of this back to like it's our own fault in so many ways because we're not listening to this wisdom and we're not listening to people who know how to maybe not fix the full problem but at least have some kind of solutions um or like you said advice on adaptability and we just have to learn how to listen to each other um this is where i think storytelling work is so important because if we can't always listen in kind of this to go back to what we talked about at the beginning you know, the form of a paper or like a research project or a government briefing. What we do often listen to are stories. Mm-hmm. And we need, hey, we need more stories about the South and about rural communities. And we need to stop stereotyping and all of those stories. But <laughs> we also need stories about what we're up against and yeah. how we can, I mean, where, where we go with it. Um, nobody yeah. that I've been able to find is really telling a lot of like, I mean, there are documentary filmmakers, obviously, telling this, but on like a big scale, like where where's the Netflix film about what we're up against um, in the South? Because you're right, it is exhausting. It is exhausting for the people who are here and who've stayed here. And one thing you said at the very beginning of what you were talking about is there are communities who can't leave, right? Um, and yeah. I think that's so important to recognize because so much of the time when you talk to people outside of these areas – there's this judgment of like, well, if you hate the South so much, like, why don't you just leave? And what people don't understand is like, A, not everybody wants to leave. Not everybody has access and means to leave. And putting this pressure, you know, if your family and your roots are here, nobody in New York City really has to think about like, if their family roots are there, leaving to, to like make something of themselves and have a life of meaning, like leaving behind their family, their support system, everything you know. Whereas that's just something that's like expected of someone Mm -hmm. in a kind of rural Southern area of like, oh yeah, of course you're going to get out. Like, why wouldn't you want to get out of your hometown? And um, I know I'm rambling on in a bunch of different directions, but I I really appreciate (laughs) that you recognize that because it's a huge mission of what we do here of, of acknowledging that you can have a creative, meaningful life as a person who might not identify with the most stereotypical group in your hometown And it's okay to stay in your hometown, right? It doesn't make you any less. And especially as we're looking at like exactly what you said, people with the means to leave are going to leave. Um, I'm working on a short story right now about exactly that, where there's like a coastal wave that floods this small North Carolina town. And they were talking about, oh, you know, all the people who were there on vacation, they just got helicoptered out. And the rest of us, we're just sitting here like trapped in our upstairs apartment, like while the water keeps rising. Um, 
I, th- I too am tormented and haunted by this question. And I just think it's so hard to form a relationship to your home and where you're from while knowing that what you're learning to love is going to disappear. Yeah. And while, and yeah, while everybody who you talk to who's not from that area does not understand and in fact looks looks down upon you like there are many many stories I can tell about being in New York City and people being like so where are you from and I I almost it's weird I almost sometimes feel embarrassed to be like oh I'm from Florida um and then I have to quickly catch myself and be like what what is this like and I think it what it is is it's a complicated relationship it's a place that the nation has a lot of opinions about um and like there's literal viral memes about florida man and florida women and about the alligators and about the racism and all of those things and yeah it's hard to say that you're from a place that one isn't the place itself isn't very kind to you and then two most people when they hear you are from that place are also not kind to you and that's something like i said earlier that's that really haunted me throughout this process is like this is a place that fully shaped who I am and that I am grateful for the people and the communities that I formed and and met there and also the land itself like the land literally like shaped my identity and what I value which is going outside and like laying down like this this past weekend me and my friend drove like two hours to go lay on a beach because I was like missing the sun and and missing like the Atlantic Ocean for one, which like the Atlantic Ocean also, like, as we know, serves really important, like serves a lot of historical importance to Black people in this country. Um, And it's also, yeah, just complicated going to the beach, knowing that like, once upon a time, there were thousands upon thousands of Black bodies at the bottom of the Atlantic. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's, I like don't even, it's just complicated. It's complicated to love this place that has not always loved you and, and doesn't really love you right now. And that's something that I, I still, I still think about, I still wrestle with every time someone says, Oh, so where are you from? And, but then I also make this, I'm, I'm always like, I'm from South Florida. And I think also that's my own bias about the other parts of Florida is that I'm very quick to say that I'm from South Florida but at the same time, it's such a large state and there are so many different politics and the land is also so different that for me, my connection to Florida is the South, like is the South of Florida. Like that is part of who I am. And if you're a Floridian and you're listening, you know it. <laughs> if you're not, maybe look at a map of Florida and like maybe you'll see. Um, yeah, I, I'm also kind of rambling, but isn't isn't that what this is for? Is just a that is exactly what this complicated. Is for. Yeah, <laughs> I think two things that come to mind: the shame. It's it's so bizarre because you think about it. I felt exactly the same way, and I still to this day feel the same way. And when I talk to people, you know, we both work with people in New York. When people, I everyone's always like, "Why are you? Why'd you leave New York for North Carolina?" And I feel like shame about it, right? Yeah. And it's like at the end of the day, the one who's projecting that most is me onto myself. Like, I don't really think anyone else is judging me the way that I think they're judging me, but it's something that you're going to be unlearning for the rest of your life. Um, And I also was thinking when you were talking about the complicated relationship for me, and, and I was just writing about this today for the newsletter, I think my art 
thrives more from that complication than it did mm-hmm. away from it. Um, there's a mm-hmm. quote by an author named Claire V. Watkins, who is works out of California now in the Mojave Desert and writes a lot about like the death of California, um, but was doing quite a bit of it from like, I think Massachusetts, um, mm-hmm. Austin, maybe somewhere around there, <laughs> and was talking about how she ended up moving back to the Mojave Desert because she didn't want her work to be an elegy, right? With Hillbilly Elegy being so characteristic of the South, my family is all Appalachian. I think about this quote all the time of like, I was in New York trying to write about the South and wanting to see it up close um, and and really being interested in that complicated history. Because ultimately, like, if, you know, when I teach my students, if you look at a plot map, like, we have to have conflict, right? I think mm-hmm. art can sometimes emerge out of these complications that really says something in a way that at least for me, I did not feel like my art was able to do that away from this place. Um, or if mm-hmm. I tried to focus on any subject matter, it just kept being like, I, I wanted to just stay in New York and write my like silly little stories, um, <laughs> you know, very Sally Rooney style, or I'm trying to, any of these other very like cool New York authors, you know, Sally Rooney is not even New York, but it's the same thing of, I want to write my little like smart, interesting novels that people in publishing are going to love. And ultimately, I just felt like I couldn't do that. I felt like I had to start telling these stories, um, reflecting back on what I knew. And and eventually that came to me of like, I have to be there to do it. I Mm. don't know if you feel the same way of like your work focusing so much on this place. I never intended to become a regional writer. And yet here I am. I also think that that has led me to these amazing communities that have really like sent my work in a total different direction. As an artist, um, how do you feel that place inspires your work? Or or do you even feel that place inspires your work? I think I'm projecting Uh a little bit, but. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I will agree. It it 100% does. I mean, I created the bulk of my project not in Florida. And the entire time I was just longing for Florida. Um, You know, I was in my senior year of college. I was in rural Massachusetts, where my only view out the window was like the Berkshires, which is the complete opposite, really, of Florida. It's a very flat place. Only mountains we have are like the landfills. Um, And so I think, honestly, in a lot of ways, being away from the subject matter I was writing about and just creating about like not being there was entirely limiting. And I'm really thankful that, you know, the people who I was creating about Femme Power were in Florida. My family was in Florida. So I was able to FaceTime. I would FaceTime my mom, like, just, just take me outside. Like, I just want to see, like, I just need to like feel, feel Florida through, through my phone. And it, it made me feel guilty in a lot of ways as well for not being there. I felt like I, I felt almost like an imposter at times um, or like, like, yeah, I, I felt like, oh, you know, what have been really good is if I had a shot of this one specific place down the road that I could get to right now. And I wasn't there and it made me feel like an outsider almost telling a story about Florida, even though I'm not an outsider in any ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that it also that just signifies the importance of having a connection to your land, to whatever land that you identify with. And that was also the point I was trying to get across is that like black and brown queer bodies have an inherent connection to Floridian land. But at the same time that I was articulating that I felt severed from the land. And so I, when I'm home, it's this weird thing of like, I'm home and I'm on vacation and like, I don't really want to create, 
but I also feel as though I almost don't have to and that I almost like I am able to when I when I'm in Florida now at least and I'm visiting I feel like my primary my primary concern is just to be one with the land and to just be outside and to be with the people that I love and to remember what it smells like and to hear the morning doves in the morning and the cicadas at night because in a way I'm also archiving this place that is not going to exist soon. So it's this weird thing where I feel a lot of pressure as an artist also to be very connected to the land and writing about Florida and doing all of these things. But honestly, when I'm home, I just want to enjoy it as it is because it's this very bittersweet feeling of this is not ever going to be the same. And like looking at the stars at night, knowing that like, you will exist, but like I here in this place will not exist in this moment, one ever again, or two in 40 years. So there are times, especially when I'm in New York and I'm like, I'm going to write a short story about Florida that I'm like, damn, I wish I was in Florida right now. But when I return, I think my primary concern is just to like be with the people that I love and where I love. And I think that that's also like, that is Brazilian and that is change-making in its own way. I think that as artists, we are almost always expected to be producing. And especially if you're in, if you're an, an artist and an activist, you feel that that pressure almost amplified. And so I think that rest and um, enjoyment and peace are in a way almost revolutionary, especially when you consider the fact that like black and brown and black bodies Black queer bodies, specifically in Florida, were almost never allowed to rest um, and were almost never allowed to just enjoy laying in your backyard or just like smelling the sweet air without feeling like you were either going to be like murdered or attacked or that you needed to hide. And so a part of me feels really sad that I moved away, but I also do visit a lot. And I think that distance is helpful as well. It also reminds me of how beautiful Florida is and how much I do love it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> God, I keep ending everything with, it's complicated, but it is, it really it is. is. It's all complicated. Um, <laughs> I, I love your point on joy and on rest. That's like a fundamental facet of both just like my life practice, my artistic practice, my activist practice is like joy is actually a radical form of revolutionism. Um, or like a radical revolutionary force, it's the words I was looking for, where when you are existing in a world where like the mainstream forces do not want to see you be happy, right? Like capitalism is working against you. Racism is working against you. Homophobia is working against you. Um, even as an artist, I just feel like so many narratives of artistry are like you have to pull from trauma and you can't have a happy life and you're going to be all alone and you're probably going to be addicted to something. And like when you're growing up in that, you you just accept those as true. And then I personally like went through a massive unlearning where I was like, you mean I could be happy both like in all my different identities and also just like as an artist, like that was mind blowing to me. It is so hard to hold on to that. Um, because like we said before, it is exhausting and it is so easy to become exhausted. But I, I like literally used to have it written on my wall and I would repeat it to myself every day of like joy is a radical form of resistance um, in a society that does not want you to be happy. That is not the end goal. The end goal is to burn you out and get you to not do this work anymore. 
finding that rest and that joy is actually one of the most radical things you can do. I totally agree, Spencer. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I think a lot about just wanting peace. And I think that that's where, that's the root of almost all revolutionary activist work comes from, is just wanting peace. And so to be able to relish in the moments that you do find peace, I think is, I think I feel like a reward for myself almost of just, it is okay to one, not be okay. And it's also okay to simply do nothing. And I think especially being in a place that is not going to be there, that finding peace in what is there now is at times it feels like that's really all that one can do. Like, especially when you have just your government working against you, you have what feels like the rest of the country, you have the rising seas and the rising temperatures. Like when it feels like everything is working against you, I think for me, at least at times, all I can really do is just rest and find peace. And so I, I tend to just to do that. <laughs> and then it, it comes, then the inspiration about which, which piece I'm going to create next comes as soon as I'm not feeling peaceful. Um, but I like to hold on to those moments when I can. I think that's really important. I mentioned before not wanting an elegy, but in so many ways, it it, it is an elegy of yeah. appreciating, but it's an elegy that doesn't feel like sad or abrasive. It's just kind of mm-hmm. understanding this will not exist. And so actually what I can do right now is appreciate that, right? And, you know, as an artist, create work that documents it and shows it as it yeah. is. Um, that's where like the audiovisual work is is so very cool. That is a question I have for you because obviously you are not in Florida anymore. So where where do you go from here with your work? You know, what what are you working on? Are you working on anything? How do you feel about that? What's going on? Oh, what am I working on? That is a that hard is question. The, yeah. That is the it's probably the hardest question you're going to get today. <laughs> yeah. I think what you were saying about, I guess, yeah, recording like, like small moments, like it's strange because even when I am in Florida and I am resting and finding peace, I still find that peace through, through capturing and recording. So like my camera roll is filled with just images of, of Florida, images of New York, and I think, well, what I've been working on is just a lot of documenting. I think growing up, I, I didn't really document a lot of things. I didn't really like journal or like record uh, my own thoughts. And it wasn't until actually Anna Quinlan um, told me and the group of people that I was with that to think of like poems and specifically letters as history and that like recording a letter or a postcard is doing a service to yourself and to everyone who comes after you. So a lot of my time, really, honestly, at the moment, I'm not creating anything. I'm doing just lots of documenting. I have a lot of ideas like swirling through my head, but I think at this time, I'm just, I'm documenting my life, kind of waiting for inspiration to strike me been reading some books here and there I feel like I'm like oh god what what have I been doing and I think that also my my like uncomfortability right now comes from the fact that like I'm supposed to always be producing something especially as an artist and honestly after after Williams I'm really burnt out and like I think especially after the thesis and after the film I think I'm literally just now coming back into my body. I literally like posted on my, my private Instagram story the other day that I was just like, 
whoa, I, I just, first of all, I just did all of that. Like, I think I just, I'm having this realization that like, I don't, it's just weird. I'm like literally coming back into my body because especially the last year when I was producing this film, like literally pouring my entire heart and soul into this project. One, just to have it be critiqued by a couple of like white people at Williams to like determine if it was going to like, if I was going to like pass the class or not. And that was exhausting. Like I of just caring so deeply about a project kind of just, which this wasn't my intention, but also kind of just to get a grade. And I think that that honestly really, really messed me up in a lot of ways. And it kind of affected my creativity. So this past year, I really have just been doing a lot of documenting, a lot of just have like literally so many just clips on my phone of just still shots on the tripod or things that I, pictures that I've taken or audio recordings of things that like I I like and like I listen to because I think for the first time in my life, I'm just recording and just capturing with really no purpose at all. And that feels in a lot of ways like I'm a failure or that like I'm not a good artist or I'm not a good creative because I don't really have a purpose. But I think that's my own shame attached to it. And yeah, I don't know. To answer your question, I'm really not doing much. I'm honestly just like resting and for the first time trying to like create with the intention of just creating, which is something that I feel like I I really haven't been able to do in a long time. So yeah. Rest was radical. There's a very specific burnout, I think, associated with creating a project that has to please a certain group of people that is not at all who the project is for. Yeah. And it has to be done by a certain day also. Yes. My senior thesis was I I did a very long essay collection about rural life. And I knew that none of the people who were going to read and grade it would care or relate to that. Um, I did not. I mean, I did pass, but I did not (laughs) love the department I came out of. Um, Lots of things associated with that. And I knew the whole time that I was creating it of like, I'm pouring my heart into this. And Mm -hmm. I know that what I'm saying is going to force you to probably deal with some of your own bias and stereotype. And so you're not going to like it. And that's okay because it's not for you, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is for my senior thesis felt very much like this is for my family, right? This is for the, I come from a long generation of single women. I don't know how it Mm -hmm. happened, but that's kind of how it's happened Mm -hmm. four or five generations back. I was like, this is for them. I don't really care what this creative writing professor who's going to read it is going to think. I also know it's going to make them angry. Um, And that's really hard. And I think that's, we could go on a whole different podcast about this of like where the problems go with that in terms of publishing and audience, like Mm -hmm. we talked about at the beginning, because even when you're trying to publish or like market a book or a story or anything that you're going to sell, it's like, I am writing this for a community. And that's also not the community that's going to get to judge and make the final decision. And that is so frustrating. That is a very specific kind of frustration that can lead to like real serious burnout. So the rest is important. It is necessary. And I think that recentering of like, who is it that I'm doing this work for, right? Mm-hmm. Under this kind of capitalist artistic society we work within, it's, it's really hard to take a step back and remember that. But I feel like I'm also doing the same thing of I'm not producing much independently, but I'm trying to kind of have myself as this like vessel for centering all these other voices and bringing together this new community. I'm like, that's, that's who I'm doing it for. It's not for me. Um, It's for all the people who've been doing this that maybe didn't have a platform. And if I can be the thing that like networks and connects that, that's really cool. 
but mm-hmm. I, I feel you on that, that burnout. <laughs> it's, it's so real. I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I never really thought that I would like, I, I haven't stopped creating is the other thing. I think I've also like, I've shifted to other forms, like audiovisual production has my heart, but I've also been like cooking a lot lately, a lot more. And I've been trying to, well, one, okay. I'm, I'm kind of lying actually when I said I'm not creating anything. I, I've i started the process of creating a black and queer cookbook, but it's like in its infantile stage right now. Um, but yeah, I think that's like my next project I really want to embark on because- I love that. You're answering <laughs> my next question for you, which is like your dream project. Like if, if I yeah. could just hand you the money and the keys and the connections and be like, what do you want to do with them? Like, what would you want to do? That yeah. sounds amazing. Thank you. It's probably, yeah, that. Um, and I've, I've also, I've been reading this book. Oh God, where is it? Oh, it's called, I was like, couldn't remember the title, but then I saw the, the cover of the book in my mind, but it's called A Disordered Cosmos. Not related really at all to the black, the cookbook thing, um, but it's about, you know, quantum physics. It's about blackness and queerness, but it's about a ton of different things. It's an autobiography. It's incredible. But one of the main things that it's about is that, we, and when I say we, I mean white, veil, what's the word? What's, what's the word for a few? A physicist, Jesus Christ. All right. Well, I, I thought you were going to say like a straight white man. I was like, I too often forget that they're like, we were talking before about bubbles and you surround yourself. And I was like, I have like one straight friend these days. And I was like, I forget yeah. that. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll like drive through a small town and be like, wow. Like, oh, yeah. 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 That totally is where my, I was like, oh yeah, like straight white man. Physicist is not where I was going. No, no. Physicist. I was like, who studies physics? Physicist. Right? Yeah, lots of right? straight white men. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a group I get to interact with much. If you're a physicist, chime in and let us know. <laughs> please, please. We're dying. Can you tell we work in the arts nonprofit world? <laughs> Literally, I'm like science, math. Please help me. Anyways, this book talks a lot about how our understanding of like the universe and like quantum physics in particular is through a straight cis white male's perspective, and that. The universe in itself is inherently queer and trans and that it does not obey any logic or any of the things that we assign to it. It is inherently outside of the binary. So that book has really been inspiring me to think about cooking, for example, also kind of unrelated. I just found out that I was gluten intolerant and lactose intolerant. So and at first I was annoyed by that, but then I realized that it was kind of a good thing because a lot of the foods that I was consuming and cooking were just like western dishes like I'm a huge fan of pasta love me any Italian cuisine and so I think that like with one reading this book and two finding out these two things about me I realized that like oh it's actually a lot of black and brown people a lot of black and brown people are also lactose intolerant or are also gluten intolerant and that the traditions of non-western food are outside of the Western binary of what we consider to be a meal, meaning meat, cheese, and bread. And I don't eat meat, I don't eat cheese, and now I can't eat bread. And so I've been thinking a lot about dishes that are inherently queer, that do not make any sense, and that are a bunch of randomness thrown into one that creates something unexpected. And yeah, I think that that book has also like helped me to realize that like even the laws of physics, you know, this law are not 
laws at all. They are, in fact, abnormal and irregular, and that my existence as a queer person is supported in the universe and by the laws of the universe. And through that, like the way that I interact with the world and the food that I consume and the things that I create are also inherently queer. So that was a whole long-winded way of saying if I had any sum of money, I would probably start writing this cookbook. I've been furiously chefing it up in the kitchen, trying to make dishes that are in no way conventional and are in no way like Western. And I've also been through that trying just more like Asian and African cuisine specifically. And they're really good. And they're things that I haven't tried um, for for a huge portion of my life. And so I think that like, with this recent discovery of like my gluten intolerance, I've found a new love of cooking and a new way, a new love for creating and creating food, which food, I could really go on a whole tangent about the importance of food to the black community. Um, So I, yeah, if I could, if I could create anything, that's what I would create. I guess I've already started creating that, but in no formal way right now, really, I just, well, I need you to finish it because I want to buy this cookbook, right? So if anyone is listening and they're like, I have the money to fund that, please fund it. I, I really want it. What is, just out of pure curiosity, what is the most recent thing you've cooked? Oh, I just, you I can literally lie just about that and make it more exciting. I won't judge. <laughs> um, I really, okay, so I've been into like fruit salads, but like unconventional fruit salads. I was having a whole debate, like an hour ago with my partner about what's a fruit. And I'm like, no, anything with the seed is a fruit. So I've just been kind of throwing anything with a seed into a bowl. So recently I had like okra, cucumber, strawberry, tomato in a bowl with, um, oh, avocado as well with some olive oil, some um, chili paste, so many, so many spices um with like I made like this like vegan whipped feta with oat milk um but then I made like a basil cut I'm like not describing it well okay I had a gluten-free toast with this like oat whipped feta on top but then this like just mound of fruit salad that I'm calling it with this sort of like basil dressing it's literally just you fried basil and you take the basil out and you have that um over top so that's what I I, I think you just lunch. need a restaurant. I'm like whipped <laughs> vegan, former vegan here. All of that sounds good to me. And um, as a South Carolinian, fried okra is like one of the few things I associate with home that I find really hard to find literally anywhere else. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. that is, I I would love that. That sounds delicious. <laughs> I could talk to Daisha all day and probably <laughs> will try to. But I know we are coming up on our time. So we do ask everyone who comes on the podcast the same question at the end. And you can choose to interpret this any way you would like. I probably should have given you a warning for it. But <laughs> you can take this as literally, metaphysically, spiritually, whatever direction you would like to take it in. But our final question for all of our guests is, what do you believe in? And it is, it's very important for us. We um, think a lot about what do we believe in. But I know that is a tough one. But that's, our, that's my last question for you. Yeah, I think, and a lot of people have faulted for me this, faulted me for this my entire life, 
is I truly believe in the power of human goodness. Like, I really do. I'm a very trusting individual, which a lot of times to my detriment has, has served uh, my detriment. Um, but I really believe that humans can do really good things. And I think that that feels very obvious, but also not at all. Um, but I really believe in just our capability as humans individually and in a collective to do good things. And I think that's what fuels my work and just myself in general, because I think that if you go your whole life thinking the opposite, more often than not, you'll find that, that it's true. Like if you, if you believe that humans are not capable of goodness, that you can almost always find that. But if you, or at least if I believe that all humans are capable of goodness, I can almost find goodness in, in everyone. And I think that in the face of impending environmental devastation, racism, transphobia, sexism, classism, homophobia, xenophobia, all of all of the isms and phobias, that if we are committed to goodness and that we believe that others are also or can be committed to goodness, then I think that we can do remarkable things. Yeah, I think that's that's what I believe in. It's so funny you say that because that is good folk itself. <laughs> I mean, came out of um, my other out of my two fundamental beliefs in life are one, joy is a radical revolutionary force. And two, I really do believe that people are good. Um, as I was doing my thesis research as an undergrad, I was a human rights and English major. I felt the exact same way. Lots of people saying, don't trust, don't believe in people. The world is bad. And the more I got out into the world and interacted with communities, both in the South, in New York, around the world, the more I really centered and solidified that belief that like, I'm right there with you. I really do believe that people are good. And I really do believe that if we look for it and we expect it to show up and we believe in it, we will see more of it emerge. Um, and that is where the title Good Folk came out of, of this idea that we project onto, quote unquote, what we call folk, you know, this idea that we're all terrible people and the South is a bad place. But I really fundamentally believe that people are good, especially here. Um, and that is, that's where we came from. So it, it is a wonder to get you on here. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Um, I, I cannot wait to see all the things you do. I can't wait for the cookbook. We will link <laughs> to all of this and we will come back when the cookbook is out and we will really link to that too. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we need you on for like a guest recipe post, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk. Um, but thank you so much, Nisha. I'm so glad this worked out. We were able to have you on here. Thank you for such an amazing conversation. And with that, we will leave you. Thank you so much for having me, Spencer. Thank you to all the good folks at Good Folk and to all of you for listening. Yeah, I hope you have a really great rest of your evening, afternoon, morning, whatever time you're listening. And yeah, just be good, please. I'm yeah, keep you. fighting the good fight, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>